0: If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Genesis chapter 13. Just a word to you, uh, you parents and kids, this is uh, a communion Sunday, and every so often we like to keep the kids in with us so that they can uh, observe and watch. We find that that's one of uh, the natural curiosity of children— uh, is something to be harnessed and leveraged uh, for, the, for their spiritual good. Uh, we hope that when they sit and see what to them probably looks like strange things, that we have an opportunity to tell them. Sort of like uh, when the Lord is, is working with the Israelites in the Old Testament, and He gives them all these things to do, and He tells Moses to tell the people, Now it will come about in a certain day that your children will ask you, What does this mean? And then you tell them what it means. So uh, if you would uh, ordinarily be in children's church, you'll be here with us this morning. Um, Having said that, uh, if you're here with a young child who maybe is uh, a little more than normally fidgety, uh, we also have the live stream going just across the way in Peacock Hall, and one of our men in the back can uh, show you where to find that. Um, But we're happy to have kids in here with us, okay? All right, Genesis chapter 13. We're going to pick up at verse 2 and read through the chapter to verse 18. As we're reading through this portion of Scripture, what I want you to, to have in mind is to think about What it means for faith in response, uh, how does faith respond to conflict? So here's personal conflict that arises between Abram and Lot. What What is the faith response that you give when you are facing interpersonal conflict? How does faith shape the way that you interact with those dilemmas or with those problems? So, as think, of, think in, along those lines as we're reading through this passage. 13-2, now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there... Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right, or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar." So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that through uh, your word spoken to us and over us, spoken in us by your Holy Spirit, that you would... Change our perspectives on what it means to live a life of faith, particularly when a life of faith comes into personal conflict. Help us to see all of life through the lens of your promises, and it's in the name of Christ we pray, Amen. So, how does faith respond? to conflict. That's what we want to look at, and ultimately, what we want to look at is the pursuit or the, uh, the reaction that Abram has to this conflict that arises between his employees and Lot's employees. But before we do that, I want to say a couple things up front. One just a, a general observation about the way that the, that the Genesis narrative is sort of unfolding starting at chapter 12 through chapter 13. And then I also want to make an observation about Lot and the, the part that he plays in this particular part of the story, all right? So, a couple preliminary observations before we get to what lies at the heart of this passage. First, just in terms of the way that the story unfolds, one of the interesting things about chapters 12 and 13 is that if you look at the way that the back and forth that goes on here, you'll notice that in 12, 1 through 9, you've got the promise being given to Abram and Abram's response to the promise. So the the initial promise and call to go to a land that I'm going to show you. I'll make your name great. I'll bless you. I'll multiply you. And Abram goes. Right after that opening scene of the promise and Abram's response, to the promise spoken to him, we pick up at 1210 where we see this conflict of Abram having to leave the land and go down into Egypt because of a famine and the near disaster that occurs through this harebrained scheme of trying to save his own life at the expense of his wife. So promise and conflict. Then we come to chapter 13 and chapter 13 starts out with a new kind of conflict. Conflict between Abram and Lot, or rather, the men associated with Abraham and the men associated with Lot. And then this passage ends with a repetition or with a repeat, a reminder of the promise. So, there's a pattern then. Promise in the first part of chapter 12, followed by conflict. Conflict followed by promise. Do you see? Promise at at both ends with conflict, both in Egypt and in the land, lying in between. The simple point in the observation that I want to make is, is that, and this is something that we'll see over and over again, and so it will probably sound like we're beating a dead horse, but because sometimes it takes a while for things to sink in or for the penny to drop, so to speak, this is another good reminder of the fact that simply because you hold the promises of God, you have not been guaranteed or promised the absence of conflict and trouble, and strife. One of the things that happens over and over and over again as you go through these narrative portions of Scripture in Genesis with the patriarchs, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and ultimately then with Joseph at the end, is that there's sort of a paradoxical way in which the fact that you hold the promise exposes you to conflicts that you probably would have been able to avoid had the promise not been given to you. There are new pressures. There are new issues. There are new ways of thinking and seeing life that come into play that have to be factored in because of the fact that you are an heir to the promises of God and the fact that God has promised to bless you. That changes things about the way that your life works and operates. It will inevitably lead to various forms of conflict, and that's okay. That's true to life in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and all through church history. So I say that hopefully by way of encouragement, maybe by also, also by way of reminder to say if you happen to be in one of those times of conflict or testing or trial right now. In and of itself, testing and trial and conflict is not an indication or a sign that you are outside of the good grace, purpose, and promise of God. It may actually be that the conflict that you're encountering is precisely because you are walking with the promises of God. Second. Abraham is the main focus in this story because he's the one who holds the promised blessing. He's he's the future heir. Lot is sort of playing a supporting role or a supporting character in this story, but there is something that we ought to draw attention to in the way that Lot interacts here because there's sort of a compare and contrast between Abraham's response to the strife and Lot's response to the strife. Because of the conflict that exists between Abraham and Lot and because of the numerous flocks and herds and wealth and prosperity that they have, the land is not big enough for the two of them. Abram would rather see the two of them part in peace rather than live together butting heads indefinitely. Abraham takes uh, the magnanimous approach, the generous approach of offering Lot first choice of where he will live. And Abram says, wherever you choose, I will vacate that area. I will not enter into it. I will choose something else. In other words, Lot gets first pick. So, when you skip down to verse 10, notice the statement, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere." But then the, the narrator gives us God's eye view of the situation and tells us something that Lot can't possibly know. Lot looks, and by the sight, the vision of his eyes, he sees a land that looks good for his future, that looks good for his prosperity, for the support of his family and workers, and so on and so forth. Lot does not see the coming destruction. Further, in verse 13, we're told that the area that Lot will begin to dwell in, on the outskirts, or eventually even in Sodom, is filled with men who are exceedingly wicked, sinful people. Now, two things need to be said here, number one, we probably ought not to fault Lot for not knowing what he can't know, right? All Lot has to work off of in this moment appears to be what his eyes see. And so when his eyes look out and sees, where am I going to settle down, where am I going to put down roots, he sees an area that looks good for that sort of venture. But as we've already said, there are tons of things that Lot does not see precisely because he can only see by the natural eye. He does not see that in the not-too-distant future that entire area is going to be destroyed. If he had been able to see the future, do you think he would have moved there? Doubtful. If he had seen and known that the citizens of that town were... Seriously depraved and vile and vulgar. Do you think he would have moved his family in close proximity to that place? Doubtful. How many times, if we were honest, could we look back and say, God saved me from what my eyes saw? I was thinking about this in in the run-up to Sunday morning, just thinking, meditating, reflecting on this passage, and seeing how easy it is to identify with Lot in this particular situation, that given the choice of a career path to take, a job to pursue, a ministry to fulfill, a family to start, a spouse to find. There are so many things that I look at and I say, that looks good. That looks like a good plan. That looks like a good place to be. And yet, I say that not knowing, not being able to see what the future holds or what lies just over the hill in pursuit of that plan or that destination. But God sees, and God in His mercy and in His grace to me and to you so many times has frustrated our plans and our ideas about what would work and what would make sense to our shame when we respond as if God is just dangling something in front of us to jerk it out of the way at the last minute, a killjoy. Because He's going to give us something second best. What if the pursuit of a certain woman for a spouse would have been deadening to my soul? Would it be a good thing for God to take a potential spouse and move them out of the picture? Yes. What if... In pursuit of a certain career path, the Lord in His wisdom and in His favor to me knew there's nothing wrong with that career path, but it is loaded with potential danger and pitfalls for you, Merit. That is not a path that is good for you to take. Therefore, I will not let you go down that path. Is that a good thing for God not to allow me to pursue the things that my eyes see? And if you were to think back in your life, you could probably say that there are times that you recognize now after the fact that just seem so clear and so obvious at the moment. But looking back with hindsight being 2020, you're like, God knew best. He did not allow me to pursue what looked good to me with my natural sight, my natural thinking, but because God is good and wise and loving, He preemptively kept me from disaster. There are other times in which you may look back on your life and you may think, that certainly seemed like the best path for me to take. But for whatever reason it didn't pan out or it didn't didn't play itself to fruition the way that I thought that it would, and I don't know why God prevented me from walking through that door. That's okay. It's okay not to know why God would keep you from certain things. The question is, In those times when you don't know, are you willing to trust that he still knows best? So, Lot parts company with Abram based on what his eyes see, not because in and of itself it's a bad move for Lot to look for good, lush, fertile ground for his family, for his people, for his flocks. But it is a recognition to say that one of the things that's going to be the contrast between Lot and between Abram is the difference between what Lot sees with the natural eye and what Abram sees with the eyes of faith. And so here's the main point that I want to try to drive home as we shift gears to look at the Lord's interaction with Abram starting at verse 14. Faith is going to come into conflict Inevitably, invariably, because of different threats, because of different people. The one who holds the promise holds everything. The one who holds the promise holds everything. Notice what happens when Lot parts and leaves. Abram, verse 14, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Don't miss the repetition here. Go back to verse 10. What did Lot do in verse 10? Lot lifted up his eyes to look. The Lord now comes to Abram and says... Lot or Abram, lift up your eyes and look. What Abram will see, though, or what he's being invited to see is something more than what the natural eye is able to discern. Verse 14. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. There's an irony at work here. Lot is given first choice of the land. Lot looks and he says, I want the best part of the land, that looks good to me, that seems like a good vision to pursue, I'm going to take that, that piece, that parcel right there over east of where we are right now. Lot, from a human perspective, appears to be the one who has gotten the better deal out of this arrangement, correct? He got the best of the land. Until you come and you hear God speak a word of promise to Abram and then all of a sudden you realize that what looked like a massive land grab on the part of Lot is actually very, very small, isn't it? Lot says, he turns and he looks eastward and he says, that's the area I want. What does the Lord say when He comes back to Abram? Does he say, Abram, look to the east and I'll show you some secondary land that will be yours? Abram, now it's time for you to lift up your eyes. But here's what I want you to look at, Abram. I don't want you to look just to the east or just to the west. I want you to look north, south, east, and west. Everywhere that you look, that is yours. What looks like grabbing for too much, what looks like getting the better of Abram in Lot's choice turns out to be pitifully small and insignificant in light of the promise. Which would you rather have? Would you rather have a zip code, a cul-de-sac, or would you like to have all of it? What this means then is because Abraham is told to lift up his eyes and to look and to assess the situation in light of God's Word, in light of God's promise, what this means for us is that for those of us who holds the promises of God, there is a way that we have to change in our thinking and the way that we live. Holding the promise means we see with our ears, not with our eyes. You you know what what we're getting at there, right? When Abraham turns and when he looks north, south, east, and west, what does he see? Does he see empty, vacant land that is waiting for someone to claim it? He doesn't. Because we're told very early on in the passage, down in verse 7, that the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. In other words, one of the reasons that this conflict arose was because so much land was already taken by people who were already living there. That Lot and Abram were having to make do with the parts that hadn't been claimed. So on the one hand... Lot takes a portion, and Abram is being told that you get all of it. On the other hand, though, the all of it that Abraham is going to get has already been claimed by people who are already living there. That seems to be a bit problematic, doesn't it? It is a problem... If when Abraham looks and sees the world around him, all he does is see it through the natural eye. But if he looks at the world around him and he sees it with the eyes of faith, if he looks through the lens of God's Word and God's promises, the lay of the land looks so incredibly different than what it does to the natural eye at first glance. We see far more by faith than we do by sight, even though what we see by faith is invisible to the natural eye. Turn to 1 Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 21. Listen to what Paul says. Slightly different context, although it's a statement that Paul makes to people who are in conflict with one another. Instead of staking out land, they're staking out their favorite teachers and using that as a way to signify their spirituality. But listen and gather the general principle of what Paul is saying here and how it relates to what we're looking at in Genesis 13. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 21, So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Why would we worry and fight and argue over scraps when everything has been given to us in the work of Jesus Christ? Not just this life, but the life to come. Not just this age, but the age to come. The kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He will rule and reign forever, and He will reward His people. Why do we worry about little bits and pieces as if we have to fight and claw and scratch to get a sliver of what God has already freely given us? Christians should be the most generous people on the face of the planet. How do you outgive God? How do you create for yourself something better than what God is going to create in the new heaven and new earth? What is time to us if all of eternity is going to be given to us? What are riches and wealth if all of the nations are going to pour their riches into the new Jerusalem and if we're going to enjoy all of the glory in this created order? What do I have to be selfish about? What do I have to fight for? What do I have to cling for? What do I have to claim is mine when everything belongs to me? Everything. There is not one square inch of this creation that Christ does not look at and declare, that's mine. And because Christ claims it is his, and you have been united to Christ, and Paul says that we are co-heirs with Christ, everything that Christ claims for himself is something that you stand to gain in the end. Doesn't that cast a far different light on the struggles of this life and the petty, trivial things that we get so consumed with? It ought to, the one who holds the promise of God, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, holds everything. And we ought to talk that way and look that way and live that way. So what does that mean then? If I hold the promised merit, I hold everything, and yet it doesn't look like I'm holding very much right now. Holding a lot of debt, holding a lot of bills, holding a lot of strife, a lot of anxiety, holding a lot of weight, well, I think what Genesis 13 goes on to indicate is that what that means for those who are holding on to the promise is that you live the present in light of the future. Your future ought to shape and condition your present moments. Look, for example, at what happens after Abram lifts up his eyes to look at what the Lord puts in front of him to say, Abram... Don't sell my promise too short. All of this is coming to you. And then notice what happens after that. Verse 17, arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Old Testament language loves to use traveling imagery to symbolize life, right? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. So here, after reminding Abraham that he's going to get far more than what he could ever hope to secure for himself, then the Lord follows that up and says, now Abraham, go ahead and live in the land knowing that this is coming to you." So Abram, from this point on, ought to be able to walk through the land and as he bumps into a Canaanite settlement, with all the peace and humility and comfort and calm that a promise holder can muster, should be able to greet them warmly with a smile on the face and think to himself, Take care of that piece of property. I'll be back for it later. Take care of this world. Take care of this stewardship that you've been given because you may not know it, but this is mine. This is my inheritance. It would be like two men coming to settle a estate. They come in, one of the members, one of the men who's coming to the estate has been promised by the estate holder, who is now passed over, that when I'm dead and gone, everything that I own is going to be given to you, including this multi-million dollar mansion. So the guy who has been promised the estate by the estate holder comes into town for the reading of the will along with other people who are expecting to gain something from the estate. Because they're coming in from out of town, they have to find a place to stay. Well, guess what? The multi-million dollar mansion is open. If you know that in the reading of the will at the end of the week, this multimillion-dollar mansion is going to be given to you because the estate holder promised it to you, when you get to the house, will you bicker and argue about who gets the master bedroom? Or... Do you say, I tell you what, you can take the master bedroom. I'll go sleep in the pool house for the rest of this week. Because I know this is coming to me anyway. Why do I have to fight and claw and scratch for it? Wouldn't that change the way that you view that temporal relationship, that temporal arrangement of living in the house, taking ownership of the estate, don't you think it would enable you to be far more generous and accommodating? Even to people that you don't particularly like or get along with? If you hold the promise, you have to see things through the eyes of faith. You have to look with your ears and hear the promise of God being spoken as you discern the nature of your life and what it is that's to come. But it also means that the more you come to hold on to and cling to and believe and find your confidence in the promise of God, it means that the promise of future blessing and reward will inevitably shape the way that you are living in this present moment. It means that you will get up and go to work knowing that one day your work is going to be pure joy and pure bliss. You'll wake up and you'll go to work knowing that one day you're going to enter into perfect rest. You'll walk through the difficulties of marriage and parenting and physical sickness and disease, knowing that God has promised something better on the other side. And that changes the way that you think about these relationships now. It also means that not only will your future shape your present how you walk, how you live, how you think in this present moment in light of the future, it also means that it frees us up to worship the Lord. One of the things that happens in this narrative, if you go back to chapter 13, verse 4, this episode begins and ends with an altar. Verse 4, Abram goes to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Verse 18, he dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. If you're Abram, and if you've just come out of a near-disastrous experience in Egypt, and you come back to the Promised Land, not simply intact, not simply with your, your wife in tow, but with actually more material prosperity than what you left, doesn't that shape the way that you view any potential conflicts coming in the future? If I can make such a mess of things in Egypt, if my plans are so horrendous and yet God is so big and so powerful, I tell you what, let's just stop and let's sing. If at the end of the day, Lot takes what looks like the best part of the land and Abraham is left to fend for himself, but then discovers, no, Abram, Lot actually chose too small. You are getting everything. Doesn't that change the way that you then proceed to walk and live through life? There's a certain sense in which the promise of God unburdens you from the burdens of this life and lets the heart sing with joy because everything that you could possibly want and desire is going to be given to you. Our problem, our dilemma, is that we're so easily distracted and dissuaded from the certainty of our faith that we feel as if the only way that we can get blessing and reward, the only way that the promise can be secured for us is if we do something to keep it, if we do something to guard it, if we do something to further it or to build it up. You can't do it. What you can do is take the promise of God by faith, believe that every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord is true, and say, no matter what the world looks like around me, I know what the Lord has promised to me. I know what the reward is. I know what the joy is in the life to come, and I'm going to live in light of that reward and that joy now. And because I stand to gain everything, because everything belongs to me as a promise holder, I can be very generous with everything that is quote-unquote mine in this brief blip of time that we call reality, that Paul says are really just shadows. We're grasping at phantoms, at vapors thinking that we are rich and well off. Why try to grab steam, vapors, shadows as if that means something? Can't you share your shadowy things with other people and let them enjoy it? This is what faith does. Faith takes hold of the promise of God, and it says, because I hold the promise of God, I hold everything, because God holds everything. Holding on to the promise means that as I look and as I assess and discern the nature and all the twists and turns of this life, I will see this life through the lens of faith. I will see this life through my ears as I hear the promises and the Word of God being spoken as I look at the world and people around me, and it also means that because I hold the promise of God, I will live now in light of the future. What I am moving towards, what I stand to gain, will dictate and determine how I live in this present moment, not the reverse. C.S. Lewis said in his inimitable pithy way, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at the earth and you get neither. We're about to transition to the Lord's Supper. One of the things, just one of the things that we celebrate in the Lord's Supper is the certainty of our faith. Because as certain was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is how certain all the promises of God are to us in Christ. If you believe that Jesus Christ suffered and died in your place for your sin to purchase your pardon, if you believe that He was raised from the dead conquering sin and death to offer new life, you have to look then at all of the other statements and principles and promises of God in Scripture and say, if this is true about Christ, all of this must be true as well. All of the promises of God, Paul says, are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So as we go to the Lord's Supper, here's one of the ways I would encourage you to think. Yes, by all means, celebrate the finished work of Christ that enables you to take hold of the promises of God, the promise of forgiveness, of justification, of reconciliation, of future reward. But understand that one of the reasons why we've been given the Lord's Supper is so that you can say to yourself, you can preach to yourself, as certain as I am tasting this little wafer right now, I know that I will taste in full all of the glories to come. As certain as I am drinking this cup right now, I know that in the future I am going to be drinking in all of the riches of God in Jesus Christ when I reign and rule with Him. There is a solid nature and component to the promises of God, and we celebrate that today. I'll ask our men who are going to help serve the elements if they'll come forward. and as they make their way back up the aisles you'll grab one of the prepackaged communion cups that has both the juice and the wafer pause just for a moment wait until uh, we're done with the music and I'll lead us through the partaking of the elements men go ahead Romans chapter 8, Paul says this, the Spirit Himself, Romans 8, 16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs, co-heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him." Present suffering, future reward, austerity now, glory to come. He goes on to say in Romans 8, verse 32, He, referring to the Father, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? We are resting in the promise of redemption. We are resting on the promise of God of future glory that is going to be given to us because of Jesus Christ. We stand to be heirs of all of creation. And Paul goes on to say, the certainty of our coming reward is rooted in the fact that God has already given what is most infinitely valuable and precious, that is His own Son. If He has given the one infinite and valuable gift, that is Himself, why would God quibble and withdraw any other lesser blessing? He's already given us the greatest. Everything else pales in comparison. He gives freely and generously, and all we have to do is take and receive. So, if you'll take the wafer out of your Communion cup, the thin, clear plastic should peel off first and get you to your wafer. Take and eat, knowing that he was bruised and broken so that you could be made whole. And if you'll take the cup, take and drink knowing that He poured out His life so that you could live and live abundantly. Let's pray. Father, we praise You and we bless You because You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We ask that You would cause us to turn our gaze upward, to look beyond the temporal, to look beyond the shadows of this world, and to be able to see with the eyes and the ears of faith, the certain promises and the certain rewards that come in union with Jesus Christ. We thank You that that future has already been settled and secured for us because Christ has bought and paid for our future with His own life. Thank You for the indwelling power of Your Holy Spirit who seals us and keeps us and guarantees as a pledge the redemption that is to come. Help us, Father, to be generous and giving, even to the point of self-sacrifice, because of what it is that we stand to gain. And we'll pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. As we close, uh, I want us to just join in one verse uh, as we sing about... The debt that was paid for us and that we are made free, just as Johnson spoke of, I will sing of my Redeemer. Would you stand as we sing this together? I will sing of my Redeemer and His one. Suffered from the curse to sin. Sed- Let's sing it out. Sing or sing. You're dismissed.